My uh, sermon this morning is entitled, What is Faith? It's a uh, continuing on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This past Thursday morning, after men's prayer, several of us went out for breakfast, as is our custom. We were grateful, so grateful that recently appointed, fully funded missionary to Senegal and official international worker of the Christian Missionary Alliance of Canada, Mike Howell, was with us. We were glad to have him. He used to come regularly, and we went out for breakfast with Mike. And at breakfast, we were asking Mike about Nikki and his work in Senegal, about their future plans, and some information about the country itself. Now, one of the interesting things that Mike told us was in regards to the native language of the Wolof people. In Wolof, Mike said, generally speaking, the letters that appear in words are all pronounced. That is, you can sound out words because you only need to follow what is written down. Now, I'm sure that's an oversimplification, but that seems significant to me and significantly different than the English language, isn't it? In the English language, you may or may not sound out a letter, and there are a few hard and fast rules to help you figure out when to make sounds and when not to make sounds. Spell out the words thought, though, tough, and through, and ask someone unfamiliar with those words to sound them out, and you will quickly see the problem. That's one way in which the English language would be difficult to learn. Another problematic aspect of the English uh, language is that there are words that are spelled the exact same way but have different meanings. Let me give you an example. If I say I am a person who likes to lie about the church, I have told you that I have an affinity for telling falsehoods about West London Alliance Church, or that I'm fond of finding a place to recline while I'm here. To lie is to say something untrue or to get horizontal in a resting position. Likewise, a bride might entrance you when she makes an entrance through an entrance. You see what I'm getting at here. The prominent word of our passage today, in fact, the prominent word of Hebrews chapter 11, is a single word that has multiple meanings and multiple nuances, particularly in the Christian religion. The word faith can mean numerous things. Faith can be confidence or trust in a person or thing. Faith can be belief in something. Faith can be a system of religious belief. And faith can be the obligation of loyalty. I have faith in you that, you're, that you put your faith in God, that you will understand the Christian faith, and that you will not break faith with our church. Four uses of the word faith, spelled the same way, spoken the same way. The word faith means different things. And in our passage today, we begin to understand in a clearer way, in a better way, what faith means. And so let's start off working through Hebrews chapter 11, 
I'll read our passage for this morning. It's short and concise. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Point number one, assurance of things hoped for. Verse 1a, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In this opening verse of chapter 11, we have a partial definition of faith. And the first error we must avoid is considering these words to be an exhaustive definition of faith. And I would even argue that what we have here is less of a definition and more of a description of faith. We see in this verse how faith works. We see how faith behaves. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. If I were to say, Dave DeSmith leads the worship arts ministry at West London Alliance Church, and he plays the drums and the guitar, I haven't really given you a definition of Dave so much as I have described Dave. That being said, descriptions can help define. And so I think we have a partial definition of faith in these verses. We must not think that this is all the Bible says about faith or that we can completely understand faith simply by understanding this verse. Nevertheless, they help define faith and they do so suitably. We see in this first phrase that faith is assured of that what is hoped for will be given. Now before we dissect this phrase, I want us to consider for a moment other translations of this verse. As I've said, the ESV says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The CSB says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. The NIV says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. The King James Version says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And the NASB says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for. The assurance, the reality, the confidence, the substance, the certainty of things hoped for. Now, all of these translations really fall into one of two categories. Some see that which faith is as subjective, as something that we experience. Some see them as faith being that which is objective. Now, the ESV takes the subjective approach, indicating that faith is the assurance That is, faith is the inner subjective sense of confidence in regards to things that are hoped for. That would be different, say, than the CSB or the King James Version. The CSB takes the objective approach indicating that faith is the reality, the actual objective substance of what is hoped for. So what do we make of this? Well, I'll tell you what I make of this. I go the subjective route with the ESV. It indicates that because I believe that this phrase is translated in the ESV, I do that because I believe it entails both the subjective and the objective. That is, faith is the subjective inner sense of certainty, certainty in the objective reality of what is hoped for. You have the subjective experience of faith in the objective reality of what is hoped for. That is, faith is my internal, experienced confidence 
that I will see come to pass the objectively real things that I hope for. Now, some of you are saying, you know, Pastor Jude, didn't you just sneak objective into your definition? How is it that we could call things that we hope for as objective realities? And the key to that is understanding biblical hope. Once again, the English language isn't our friend here. When we use the word hope in our modern day, we usually mean something different than the biblical word hope. Let me explain. When we use the word hope, we often mean an emotional state of desire regarding what we would like to happen. We hope it doesn't snow because we don't want to shovel a driveway. We hope the new strip mall in the corner ends up having our favorite coffee shop. Or the far too common, I hope the Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup this year. In all those examples, the desired outcome is uncertain. And in the case of the Leafs, it's uncertain and unlikely. (laughs) And so when we say hope, we're talking about things that aren't certain. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. That's not the concept the Bible refers to when it speaks of hope. Biblical hope is a state of desire for a future outcome that is certain. Not that may happen. Not that we wish will happen. It is certain. Biblical hope looks ahead with longing. It looks ahead with anticipation to things that will surely come to pass. Biblical hope, brothers and sisters, is not wishful thinking. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say it is an anchor for our soul. In the sixth chapter of Hebrews, we read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Brothers and sisters, salvation in Jesus who saves according to God's promises, a God who does not lie, this is a certain thing that we desire. And it will happen in all its fullness as God has said it will. It is a certain thing we hope in. So with that in mind, we come to faith being an inner sense of assurance, an inner sense of certainty, an inner sense of confidence of things God has promised which are sure to come about. Now, we can see these ideas if we look at theological books. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology defines faith as a trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. What God has said is not an uncertain thing. It is a certain thing. So much of our hoping, the way we use that word, is insubstantial. It's ethereal. It has no substance to it. But that isn't biblical hope. Biblical hope is the desire for something that is certain. And that means faith is a wholehearted certainty of what is hoped for. Brothers and sisters, biblical hope is something strong, secure, and stable. And therefore, faith is our assurance 
of these sure, secure, stable, strong things. Faith is not a flimsy thing. It's a thing of substance. It's an inner sense of certainty and confidence that those things that God has promised, that we desire and long for, will happen, even as God said. That's the sense that faith has in the last verse of chapter 10 that we looked at last week. Do you remember? But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Can you imagine if what that really meant was, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who wishfully desire a preferred outcome and preserve our souls? That's silly. That doesn't make sense. No, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have a heartfelt confidence that what God has promised and what we desire will undoubtedly come to pass. You know what happens to people who hope, who place their hope in uncertain things? They often shrink back and are destroyed. Do you want evidence of that? This spring, ask a Leafs fan how their team did. What are then these certain things that we place our hope in? We're looking for certainty here. Is it found in the stock market? Is it found in the government? Is it found how many likes or how much approval we get on Twitter or Facebook? No. Certainty is found in God's word. God's word and all the promises it contains, rightly understood, are certain. They're certain because of God's character. He cannot lie. If he spoke it, it is true. If he promises it, it will come to pass. And so the most straightforward practical application I see this morning in regards to faith is found in the word of God. It is there that you see God's character. He is preeminently trustworthy. It is there you learn of God's promises. They are supremely certain. Now, if faith is the inner sense of confidence and assurance in the certain promises of God, then we strengthen our faith immeasurably by reading God's word. You need to understand who he is. You need to understand what he's done. You need to understand what he's promised. Brothers and sisters, we don't strengthen our faith by faith by some internal process of mustering up. No, we go to God's word and we see what he's like and we understand his ways and we understand his will and we understand what he was, has promised. And our faith is strengthened because we're dealing then with certain things. Now, a second application this morning is to consider the tragedy of faith that is placed in promises of God that are misunderstood or misapplied. I have seen firsthand the soul carnage when people have an inner sense of assurance in regards to promises that they mistakenly think are for them or promises that they have misunderstood. I have witnessed the pain, confusion, and doubt that resulted from a teaching that was prominent in a church I grew up in, a teaching that said God had promised to heal every health issue that we will ever face. 
Brothers and sisters, God has not promised that. And if you have faith in that, you will have that faith crushed and be left to make sense of it all. I have experienced myself the disappointment and questions that rise up when I became assured of a promise of God for my life only to not have those desires met. What had happened is I read a promise in God's word and misapplied that promise, thinking it was meant for me, when in fact it was never meant for me, nor was it meant for anyone else except the original person God had given it to. And so we need to understand God's word. We need to not misapply God's promises. And so we need to be careful, and we need to study God's word and study God's promises so that we don't misunderstand them and so that we don't misapply them. And so that when we put our faith in things, it's not in things that are not certain. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and faith is the conviction of things not seen. Point number two, conviction of things not seen. Verse 1b Now, there is clearly a type of parallelism that exists between the first and second phrase. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And we run into the same objective, subjective problem in this phrase as we did with the first. The ESV uses the word conviction, which is an inner sense of certainty. It's a firm and fixed belief that a person has. But the CSB, for example, goes objective only saying faith is proof of what is not seen. Nevertheless, I'll sleep in the bed that I've made here. I'll stick with the subjective sense of the first part of the phrase and the objective sense for the second part. Faith is the internal, firm, and fixed belief of things that we cannot see with our eyes. But what are these things that are unseen? What is the author of Hebrews talking about here? Well, it would certainly include the future promises as the first phrase of verse 1 indicates. And the rest of the chapter goes on to mention other unseen things, which I think are included in this. Now remember, as we consider these things, just like the future promises, these things are unseen, but that doesn't mean they are uncertain. These things are unseen, but are certain. The unseen things of verse 1 likely include the past realities, such as the creation of the universe, mentioned in 11 verse 3. They likely include present realities, such as the existence of God, as in 11 verse 6. They include the characteristics of God, like his faithfulness, 11.17, and his power, 11.19. So I would paraphrase verse 1 this way. Faith is the inner assurance and confidence of God's certain promises and the inner fixed and firm belief in the unseen reality of, of unseen realities of God, of God's word and God's works. Now, while this concept of faith is under consideration, I want to talk to you about a distinction that theologians make. And it's in regards to faith, and it's evident in the Bible, and it's imperative for us to understand. And this is the difference between faith and saving faith. Historically, the church's understanding of saving faith insists 
that it contains three elements. The facts, comprehension of the facts, and trust in the facts. Now, the facts pertain pertain primarily to Jesus, who he was and what he did. In order for someone to believe in and trust in Jesus and his saving work, a person must know the facts. They must know that Jesus is the Son of God and God himself. They must know that he came to save sinners, which is a fair and just description of every human being that ever lived except Jesus. They must know that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the work of Jesus in which they are saved. They must know that their sins can be forgiven through this work of Jesus. But a bare knowledge of the facts does not constitute saving faith. Because secondly, a person must know the basic facts and they must comprehend them. Sometimes our children learn facts about Jesus, and sometimes they learn them so well they can even recite them. But that does not mean they understand them. Some of the kids learned a fact about baptism in the catechism this morning, and that's a good thing. And they might even remember that fact, and that is also a good thing. And yet, they might not understand it. In other words... Knowing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again is not enough. One must understand what it means that Jesus lived and died and rose again. However, that's still not enough. It's not enough to know that Jesus exists and that he made certain claims and that he did certain things. And it's not enough even just to understand those things. The sinner must place his or her trust in Christ's claims in the gospel. He or she must know and understand that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God and that he saves sinners through his life, death, and resurrection, and then they must put their trust in him for that salvation. Now, perhaps you are here today and you have never put your faith in Christ. Let me encourage you to do so this morning. Perhaps you know the facts about Jesus. You know about his gospel. And perhaps you even have a good understanding of those facts. But the question is this morning, do you trust Jesus? Have you put your faith in him such that you can say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in who he is and what he did. And I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins for reconciliation to God, and for eternal life. And if you haven't done that, you could do that right now. In fact, you should do that right now. And if you have any questions about that, about what it means to place your faith in Jesus and to trust Jesus, then please ask one of us, ask one of our staff, ask one of the elders, ask a volunteer, even ask someone sitting near you because we can help you. And we have worked through both phrases of verse one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I've suggested to you that faith is an inner certainty of the promises of God and an inner fixed belief in God's existence, character, and works. And we have distinguished saving faith as pertaining specifically to knowledge and understanding and trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But you may be 
wondering why I felt it was necessary to explain to you the difference between faith and saving faith. Well, the reason I did that, or at least one of the reasons I did that, is because there is a type of faith that we see in the Bible that is not saving. There is a type of conviction of things not seen that falls short of saving belief. There is a type of certainty in the promises of God that does not lead to redemption. We read in the book of James, when James is discussing faith and works, the following. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons believe in God. They believe he exists. They believe he created the world. They believe he has great power. They even believe his promises and that they know they will come to pass. But this belief, this type of faith does not save them. And there certainly have been people who have believed God exists and believe what the Bible says about him, but nevertheless refuse to trust him. And this will not save them. And so it's a critical distinction, a distinction that was necessary to make. Further, this distinction becomes important when we look to our final point this morning. Point number three, Old Testament saints, verse 2. By faith, the Old Testament saints received their commendation. The people of old, the ancient ones, the ancestors, they received their commendation from God, received God's stamp of approval by faith. That is, the Old Testament saints who were commended by God are those who carried about inside themselves a sense of assurance and trust about the things God had promised, which are certain to come about. And they waited for them with longing. The Old Testament saints who were commended by God had an inner, firm, and fixed belief in the things of God they could not see, whether they be past, present, or future. And what we will see, Lord willing, as we work our way through chapter 11, at the, that is that the receiving of the commendation of God through faith in this case is a saving faith, which leads us to one final question. I suspect many of you are thinking of it already. How were the Old Testament saints saved? Particularly in light of my talk about saving faith, being about Jesus, and what he did, and who he was, and then trusting in him. How were the Old Testament saints saved? The simple answer to that question is that they were saved the exact same way that every one of God's people are saved. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If anyone asks you that question, you can answer that way and you'll be right. How were Old Testament saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Wait, what, Pastor Jude? How can you say that people were saved by putting their faith in Jesus before he was even born, before they even knew his name, before they had any clue what it was he would do. Well, I can say that because the Bible says it, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That applies to the Old Testament saints as well as the new. 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let me bring, hopefully bring some clarity here. I think we can start by quoting Peter Gentry, a Canadian theologian. I like how he puts it. He said, Old Testament saints were saved by faith in Jesus Christ, dimly perceived. They were saved by faith in Jesus Christ, dimly perceived. I believe that Jesus is dimly perceived in many ways in the Old Testament. He was and is dimly perceived in the promises of a Savior, in the promises of a Messiah, in the promises of a coming King, in the promises of a righteous sufferer. Jesus was dimly perceived through the law and through the instruction of the Lord. Jesus was dimly perceived in the people of the Old Testament, such as Adam and David and the high priest and the monarchs and the prophets. And I think Jesus was dimly perceived in events such as the Passover and the Exodus. And I think Jesus is dimly perceived in the rites and the rituals of the Mosaic Covenant. In all those individuals, in all those ideas, in all those institutions, the people of God put their faith in God and in his son dimly perceived. Now the rest of Hebrews 11 gives us examples of the faith of the ancient ones, of the Old Testament saints. So I don't want to go into that today. But let me speak of one Old Testament saint who isn't mentioned in Hebrews 11. Let's take a look at Job. Job was a servant of God who experienced severe suffering at the hands of Satan. Job loses his family, his wealth, and his health. Job has three friends come to comfort him and to discuss his crushing series of tragedies. They insist his suffering is punishment for sin in his life. Job, though, remains devoted to God through all of this and contends that his life has not been one of sin. A fourth man tells Job that he needs to humble himself and submit to God's use of trials to purify his life. Finally, Job questions God himself and learns valuable lessons about the sovereignty of God and his need to totally trust in the Lord. Job is then restored to health and happiness and prosperity beyond his earlier state. However, in the midst of all of these events, before the restoration came, Job made this declaration. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Concerning that verse, commentator Christopher Ashe writes this. Job voices a longing for some permanent memorial of his righteousness. He longs to be vindicated, to be justified. And then in the famous words of 1925 through 27, in a remarkable moment of clear faith, he trusts that there is a redeemer who will testify for him against his accusers, who will give him final vindication. And this redeemer can be no less than God himself. This thought that in the heart of God himself, there is a redeemer for him, fills his own heart with awe. And we know that Job's hope is sure because centuries later, Jesus Christ, the one whom Job foreshadowed, died with this same hope. You see, the father was the redeemer of Jesus. He stood at Jesus' tomb, raised him from the dead. And this was the proof that he will do this for every 
man and woman who puts their faith in Christ, God's redeemer. Job perceived dimly that God was his redeemer. And in doing so, he perceived Jesus. Be it ever so dimly, he perceived Jesus and he believed. Old Testament saints were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, dimly perceived. Well, that is all the time we have this morning. Brothers and sisters, we must be people of faith if we are to preserve our souls. We must be people who are sure about the certainty of God's promises, rightly understood and rightly applied. We must be people who are firm and fixed in our belief in God and his word and his works. And for this faith to be saving, we must know the gospel, we must understand the gospel, and we must trust in the one whom the gospel proclaims. And we rejoice. Because just like the saints of old we'll read about in the coming weeks, Lord willing, just like them, we receive God's approval. And we receive it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to take your word and your truth and to apply it to our lives. Would you help us to be people who are continually in your word, that we might understand you, that we might understand your works, that we might understand your promises, and that we might hope for them and be assured of that hope. I pray you will keep us from putting our faith in things you have never promised or putting our faith in promises that are misapplied. Save us from that peril, Father God, by your Spirit. And I pray, Father God, that you would give saving faith to those who do not yet believe. I ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.